Welcome to the PMNR Pocket Mentor, a podcast brought to you by the Association of Academic Physiatrists Medical Student Council. This podcast is a forum for medical students to get to know physical medicine and rehabilitation and help navigate your journey to an exciting and fulfilling career in the field. So welcome, and thanks for joining us. This is a page that I really look at it closely. I don't know about other program directors, but I find it has more real-world application in terms of your success as a resident and your happiness kind of outside of work, I found. Welcome back to the PM&R Pocket Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Barb Kuzminski. So our last two episodes were a little recap of our two new sessions for med students at this year's AAP Annual Assembly. In our last episode, we heard from the program director roundtable session, where we asked four program directors about their take on everything from how to get PM&R exposure, starting as an MS1, all the way through applying, interviewing, and ranking programs. As you can imagine, that was a lot to squeeze into a 45-minute Q&A session. So as a kind of spin-off from that seminar, I was lucky enough to get to chat more in depth with some of our panelists on a lot of similar topics and a few extra questions that came up along the way. We'll follow our previous format, where first we'll get to know our guests and their work a little bit better, and then we'll move into their advice for med students interested in physiatry. So here's my conversation with Dr. Miguel Escalon, Program Director at Mount Sinai PMNR in Manhattan, New York. Dr. Escalon, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's my pleasure. All right, let's just jump right into it. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, great. So right now I'm at Mount Sinai, which is, there are multiple, but I'm in the one in New York, and I'm the residency program director there. I do a little bit of everything. So I'm in the ICU, I do some consults, spinal cord injury, brain injury, and I really enjoy my role with the residents. Before Mount Sinai, I did a fellowship in spinal cord injury, actually at Mount Sinai, and then I did my residency training in Houston, and before that, I was kind of born and raised there in Texas. And how did you find out about PMNR in the first place? A book. Really? <laughs> yeah. There are these books, I don't even remember what it was called now, but there are these books you buy, and they have every specialty listed, and it's like a you know, one-page summary on what is the specialty. So I, I bought this I book. That. I had no idea what I was going to do, and I read the whole book, and then I kind of I came back to physical medicine and rehabilitation because I had always liked neuro, but it just wasn't didn't feel quite right. And uh, so I got the book, and that's when it all, all started there. Do you remember what the title is of the book? No. I can look. I don't, my wife may know because she's the one that reminded me that I did this because I had forgotten. But she reminded me a couple months back that I had bought this book. So I may have it somewhere. No problem. Yeah, we, <laughs> could, we could find it and put it in the show notes later. And while you were going through medical school, so did you know going into medical school, or did you figure out while you were in school, or what was the timeline on that? I figured out while I was in school. I mean, I, I think we all have some kind of notion going into medical school, what we may be or do, whether that's what we end up doing is another story. But, and a lot of that has to do with what we're exposed to. You know, I didn't know that there were many other doctors, what kinds of surgeons there were or anything for I really got into medical school. You know, I thought there was just kind of like pediatrics and a couple other things. So I learned a lot about medicine in medical school, and I learned a lot about residency in residency. So I didn't really know physical medicine and rehabilitation existed. I would say this was probably like latter half of my third year in medical school, and it was first from the book. And then I did a rotation, which was one week of EMGs and one week of spend a different day with different kind of therapists. So I did one day PT, one day OT, one day speech, one day aqua therapy, which was fun, and uh, one day of work hardening, which was also fun. Of what sort? Work hardening. What's that? So this is a program uh, for people that are on workers' compensation mostly. So they go out of work with, let's say, a low back injury, something or other, Mm -hmm. and then they have to prove that they're fit to work. So they had this kind of like setup where uh, there were different things you would do, you know, like you know, flip a tire, you know, whatever you had to do at work. And it was set up that way, you know, carry a bag of sand, whatever it was. And you had to prove that you could return to work. So they would kind of start you off with like a one pound bag of sand and you'd work up to like a 10 pound bag of sand, whatever it was that you had to do. So I watched people do that. It was kind of like, you know, the American gladiators or something, but it was fun. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Have you seen that in 
practice now or do we do anything like that now? I, we don't do that at Mount Sinai now. <laughs> this was in, you know, in Illinois, so in medical school. So I don't know um I don't know how common it is, but I know it exists. Okay, there you go. Um so during school since you knew kind of a little earlier, did you have any mentors while you were going through to get to PMNR? I don't know about mentors in the way that we would think about a mentor, meaning like a role model that led me to PMNR. I think I had strong role models in that I, in hindsight especially, realizing why I appreciated those people was the way they thought about and talked about their patients. It's all these people that most of them were internal medicine, but really those are the ones that stood out to me on rounds in terms of thinking as the patient as a whole person and how do we communicate with them? How do we give them this diagnosis? What are they going to do with that diagnosis once we, once we give it to them? Which was kind of a different frame of mind versus, okay, they have pneumonia. You give them whatever you're going to give them and make, get them out of here in like three or four days. Can you tell us a little bit about any projects you have outside of clinical practice? So probably the one that still <laughs> revolves around physical medicine rehabilitation that I spend the most time on would be Wheeling Forward which is an organization in New York started by two gentlemen that have spinal cord injuries. They actually met on the inpatient rehab unit at Mount Sinai. Really? Mm-hmm. And they were roommates, and when they got out, they were, about, they were college age, basically. And when they got out of rehab, and you know, they went back to school and work, and then they decided to start this non-for-profit, and they do a lot of great things. And I, kinda, I sit on their board, but just to give a, a, an example of a few things they do, they've opened up. I have two facilities, one in Manhattan and one in Brooklyn, that technically are adult daycares, but really what they are is adapted gyms for people with disabilities. So they have, you know, they have trainers, they actually have therapists that go in a few times a week, so they have adapted spin class, adaptive taekwondo or dancing and different things. They do a lot of things for the community. They had Super Bowl watching party, all that kind of stuff. They advocate a lot for policy, and Alex has taken a few different jobs. He first worked with the taxi limousine service, and so now there are accessible taxis in New York that you could call before Alex. That wasn't kind of mandated that there would be that, and now he's just started working for the metro. Uh, so he's going to work on a lot of elevators. And Yannick is a sommelier in New York, and he's amazing. And uh, so a lot of the events they throw are fundraisers are, are revolve around wine, which I enjoy. That's great. So, yeah. yeah. If you find <laughs> if you find yourself in New York, you should look up Wheeling Forward for a wine event, and they may be coming to a city near you. They're trying to expand. You know, our next <laughs> step is something that I know Bill Niehaus and Jeff Berliner and also Sunil Kothari in Houston. So first two from Denver and Sunil in Houston and some other folks in Houston with RSVP doing the free clinics. Yeah. And we've been talking about that with Wheeling Forward, uh, but I've also been talking about it with Bill and some of these other folks to try and, and help us because we have a space and we have the liability waiver, but we don't have as kind of the know-how of the day-to-day operations. So hopefully we'll have a free clinic in New York soon. I don't know what it'll be called, per se. Hopefully it'll be RSVP brought to you by Wheeling Forward or some such. Very cool. Uh, so we're working on that. So that's kind of, that's my big thing outside of work that's related to work, so to speak. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we actually just had Dr. Niehaus yeah. on the show uh, two episodes ago. Yeah, he did great. So I'm going to try to live up to his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So maybe switching gears a little bit now, for students that are interested in Mm -hmm. pursuing PMNR, what kind of advice might you give them? That's an interesting question and thought. You know, we just, we're live at AAP, by the way. So we just had a meeting next door. It's the Resident Fellowship Program Director Workshop. So we just went over different stats and data about who's applying. You know, are they U.S. grads or international grads? Are they MD or DO? you know, what are their board scores and all of these things. And, and typically what we're finding is the applicants are not increasing in number, but they're increasing in some of these quality metrics. So the board scores are higher now than they certainly were when I was applying, et cetera. But I, th- I think still what holds true for program directors is from the pool of applicants, while it may be more competitive from the outside looking in, from the residency program director side, you're still trying to find people that are gonna be good residents. What does that mean? Somebody that's really interested in rehab medicine? How do you show that? Well, maybe through your volunteerism, maybe through your work output through posters or research, which I know is a lot to ask. That's why I spend a lot of time looking at volunteerism and other ways you can show your interest. And are you a hard worker and a good person? So for me, it's just as 
you know, your board score is important, but it's also important to me that you do something outside of medical school. So if I see that you haven't volunteered and you haven't uh, done anything else, but you have a perfect board score, that to me is a red flag because then I wonder, are you going to be able to juggle everything that residency throws at you? And I think we all kind of are looking for that. You know, as program directors, we're looking for people that we think will thrive in, in the environment, which is a little different. You know, we want you to pass your boards, but you're not studying for shelf exams the way you were. So the right. the skill set is a little different. So you have to, acquiring knowledge is one thing and applying it is another. So also I, I really look at your transcripts and what scores you get on the rotations that you have as a med student in your third and fourth year, even more so than maybe the grades you got in your first and second year. As for the volunteering activities or other activities, mm-hmm. is there anything you'd kind of recommend? Yeah, I think it depends. So I think it's important to have something, you know, whether it's a, a job or you volunteer or you do research because that shows that multitasking I was talking about in time management. But within one of those three things, you have to, I think you should show an interest in rehab. So let's say you only have time to volunteer. Well, then you might volunteer, you know, at sporting events. You might volunteer uh, at a subacute rehab. You might volunteer at like a wheeling forward event or otherwise, you know, if you have a residency program near you, there's a lot of things, you know, so we have like adaptive surfing in the summer and things like that. So volunteering there or getting involved in a student interest group, creating one if one doesn't exist, things that would just show interest to say, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about. Not all of us are lucky enough to have that because we might not even know that rehab medicine exists, but then you kind of tailor your application to say, listen, you know, I have this time management. You can see it from my application. I didn't know you existed till yesterday, but from the second I knew you existed, <laughs> then you right. can see, you know, how I've pursued you. Right. And if we happen to know a little bit earlier and can plan our electives out, is mm-hmm. there anything you'd recommend to take other than PMNR? So I think it's an interesting question because I think there are two ways to look at it. One way to look at it is this is your last chance to do things you may never get to do again. So that's what I did. And I, all my electives were PEDS things, PEDS cardiology, PEDS general surgery, PEDS hemonc. Why? I don't know. Okay, I was going to ask. <laughs> uh, but that's what they were. And I just kind of felt like it was my last chance to really do that. And it was something that was important for me, I thought, in medical school. So that's one thing. You know, it's your kind of last chance really to foray into something that you may not get to see again. The other thought is to do things, to audition as much as you can, right? To say, I'm going to go to as many rehab programs as I can, the ones I want to go to, so I can do well there, and hopefully they'll, they'll like me and they'll rank me to match. And then there's the in-between, which is, oh, I want to just do a rotation anywhere to learn about rehab, and then I want to supplement that by rotating in things like neurology and orthopedics and neurosurgery, fields that we collaborate with closely that are referral sources to us and also for us. And lastly, along the same lines, in terms of like an intern year, which is a little different, you know, people talk about should you do transitional year, general surgery, you could do, and if anybody listen, you could really do anything for intern year. Did you know this? You could do OBGYN. You could do OB? You could do anything. You could do OBGYN, gen surge, peds, internal medicine, family medicine. What if I'm missing something? Yeah, but you can do any of that. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so... I would say, from my perspective, uh, I would always suggest to do some like internal medicine because I think it transitions you well as a PTY2. Since most programs tend to be inpatient rehab heavy your first year, then it's an easier transition. If you're coming from a transitional year where you've been pretty relaxed, then it'll be a little bit of a rude awakening depending on where you go because it's, there's really not much difference in terms of how busy you are between an internal medicine rotation and an inpatient rehab medicine rotation. I've actually heard that a lot along the interview trail. A lot of residents echo that for sure. You actually started talking a little bit about the residency aspect. So for students that are moving into their fourth year and looking at picking a residency Mm -hmm. and navigating that, any advice there? So how to pick a residency? We can start with that. Okay. Well, I think it's, it's difficult to start because unless you know going in exactly where you're going to be in 10 years then it's hard to make that decision. I mean, I think the simple fact is I don't know any physiatrist that doesn't really love to do physiatry. Anybody from any specialty can complain or whine about paperwork, and we all have that in common, so it's not unique to PM&R. 
but most people really enjoy the meat of what they do. So I'd say one, that should really trickle down to the residents. And so you should feel that. They should feel that too. So if you're interviewing somewhere and you're, and you're not getting that sense that well, people may, are always going to complain about something because we're human. But generally, you know, they should be happy and feel like they're getting a good education and they're learning the things that they came there to learn. So if that's a problem, so that's a, probably the biggest red flag. From there, it's really to taste. Do I get along with these people? Are they, are they my taste? In terms of do I want to hang out with them? You might not know any of them by the time you arrive, but like tends to, to attract like. So probably when you arrive, the classes that will have filled in for those people that graduated in the time that you're waiting to show up will be similar type people which is something to consider. And then the other thing to consider is if you really don't, if you know that you want to do pain and that's your plan, then the grit, that's great. So you probably want to go somewhere that where there are pain doctors you can rotate with, right, in your department or that, you know, you have elective time that you could use or that you might ask more about procedures, et cetera. But if you really don't know what you want to do, the nice thing is the ACGME mandates you should get similar experiences, different places. So you should get 12 months inpatient, 12 months outpatient, et cetera, et cetera. So then really what your job would be is to understand the differences between those experiences. So what's the difference between rotating 12 months at a VA versus, you know, inpatient VA versus inpatient general rehab versus inpatient spinal cord injury, et cetera. And then out of that, what's important to you um, or what what do you want to be exposed to? Uh, what do you want to say that you could do? Um, do you want to be able to have anybody walk through your doors or roll through your doors or whatever through your doors and be able to treat whatever they have, even if you just start the process and then refer them to your buddy? Um, or do you want to have a practice uh, that is very specialized? And there's no right or wrong there. It's just is. So if you don't know, then I would say you really want to go somewhere that, that will show you a little bit of everything. So you can get a taste of, it's hopefully one of those things that you taste will be your favorite flavor. And you can go from there. So coming off the end of interview season, anyone who's been through it knows that the most common question from anyone is, what questions do you have? And it becomes <laughs> a hilarious and yes, just a funny question. And the funny thing I found is how much that answer, so the questions we ask change over the interview season. Yeah. At the beginning, I had no idea what I was talking about, and it was like, do you pay for parking? And by the end, you have a completely different set. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very specific to different people. We all kind of reflect on what matters to us and then ask about those things. But from your perspective, what kinds of questions do you feel maybe on the one hand are really beneficial for candidates, and on the other hand, what kind of questions do you like to hear as a program yeah, that's director? Excellent. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. So one thing I want to just touch on, if you'll indulge me, sure. is that you know, it's really a time of introspection and learning. Any, this is a huge life event for anyone. So, and this is the third or fourth time that you're going through this. right? So maybe for undergrad and then med school and now residency. And so I was the same way. I learned a lot on the interview trail. And so certainly my interviews improved and I reached a peak point where I was kind of on it. And I could ask questions that were more insightful. I will say, as an aside while I'm on that, there's no benefit to waiting to interview or interviewing early. Some people try and game that. From a residency program director perspective, you know, I, there's no benefit to waiting until January or in being on the first day. Um, so just FYI. That is something we definitely wonder about. And I think there's something to, to be said in terms of stamina. So, you know, you may cancel a lot of your January interviews, especially if they're somewhere snowy. Well, <laughs> you know, if you, and so, uh, but program directors and other people can also feel tired at the end of interview season. So not to say that we don't take it seriously because we take everything seriously, but we're only human, so there's no, a lot of people save where they want to go to the end. Um, I would I would say if there's a place you really want to, really want to go, then you could kind of schedule that somewhere in the middle, and so maybe you'll have hit your stride in terms of interview. Or you could even do it up front, because if you do it up front, then everybody that comes after you will be compared to you, <laughs> right? Is this person really as good as Barbara? <laughs> I don't really know, you know, because she, she, you know, she, she did so great on day one. All right, no, not as good, right? So then you kind of become this uh, uh, 
it's silly, you know, it's, it's weird to think about things that way, but you just, if you just right. put yourself on the other side, these things become a little more obvious. Now, back to what you asked me, uh, which was about questions. So I think one thing I like to, when I say, do you have any more questions, there are a lot of things I want to get out of that. One, I want you to know that I'm there for you, and that I'm, that's starting now, because I think that's important for a program director to show. Uh, and then what I want to hear from you is that you've put into thought, you've put thought into uh, Mount Sinai specifically, right? Because that's where I'm at. Or I would say that's probably true of anyone. You can ask the same question of all your interviewers because when we sit down and talk about you at the end of the day, we don't always talk about what you asked. We talk about how engaged you were, how much research you did about the program, how insightful you are, um, etc. So you could ask all of us the same thing, and you don't have to say, well, I already had all the questions on my list answered. Um, so that's one thing. That's helpful. That's yeah. something I've wondered. <laughs> and then, um, so, that, so that's, I think, the biggest thing from a program director perspective is those questions often will read into that right or wrong, how interested you may be. So if, if I'm your last interview of the day, then I even if uh, you've asked everything you've wanted and you have no questions, you know, ask when you've already asked. Uh, because if you just say, no, I'm good, then I, may be, I might just say, well, I thought this interview was going well, but you know, either it's gone so well that <laughs> Barbara has no questions, or uh, you know, this, is, this is, you know, he or she or, or they are just calling, you know, they're texting their friend, come save me from this date kind of thing and you don't know because you all those all those the same thoughts that are going through your mind as an applicant are going through your mind as a program director okay i think from a resident perspective the questions that are important to ask uh, are hard are the, the ones that you want to ask are the most important are really what you ask the residents i think a program director um as much as you try you can't live what a resident's living in that moment same as we can't live what a patient's living. So we might have insight into what that patient is going through and where that might look, what they might look like in like a year or six months. And I can sometimes do that with the residents. But I think in terms of being happy and do the residents feel like faculty's teaching and, and engaged and really invested in their evolving as a physician, um, those, those questions really have to come from, from the residents. The most important thing I think that you could find out on an interview day is how does the program respond to issues big or small that arise? So do the residents feel if something's wrong that even if whatever outcome happens is not what they want, that it will be taken seriously and that some process will be put into motion? Because I think that shows a program that's willing to evolve and change and want to partner with the residents. So you're adults, you're not kids, and I think your ideas are valid and they should be listened to in the moment. I know I'm rambling a bit, but one, one thing that this we did great. was, so we have, you know, every residency has chiefs. Being a chief is, is like a whole other podcast. But even within a residency, as a PGY4, you forget what it was like to be PGY2. And you may have different kind of respect and view for that, that one rotation that everybody thinks is the hardest one. Uh, but just because there's value to that in hindsight doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider what people are living in that moment. So we have a rep, uh, we have a representative like a, like a class rep from every year. So we have a PGY2, a PGY3, and a four separate from the chiefs. And they form part of a committee. So every residency has a, a program evaluation committee. And so they sit on that and they bring up issues that from their class specifically. And so in that way, we try and capture a snapshot of every year all the time. Right, get that perspective. Right, and so then, because everybody might complain, let's just make something, you know, about like how many admissions are coming in, right? And then so that says, okay, this is how we feel about that now. And then the threes and fours can say, well, that was also a problem for us, and we tried these things. They did work or they didn't work, or what have you. Or the threes and fours can say, oh, no, that's different than what we experienced. And uh, otherwise, you just get what you believe to be the same complaint over and over. And you can't really be sure of that unless right. it, it comes up in a way where people that are living it and are just, just freshly lived it can comment. 
That's a nice system. Thank you. <laughs> Before we move on from yeah. that realm of things, although I guess it ties in because you wanted to talk a little bit about the process as a program director. Mm-hmm what that's like for you. Is there any other comments you wanted to, to share or just go into that process? You mean about the process as to how I look at an application? Mm-hmm. So I th- one thing that is interesting, you know, inquiring minds want to know, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, what do program directors think about when they're interviewing you? But I guess um, one thing is how, how do you get the interview? So first of all, it's very difficult. There are people every year that... Uh, I'm sure I should interview, and I don't, and ones I do that maybe I shouldn't. Um, <laughs> it's hard because everybody's application is really good. Um, so I think it's important for the applicants to know how the data is presented to the program directors because then you might be able to affect um, how your application looks. So it's like any window. It has multiple tabs. So I log into Eris, I click on Barbara, Barbara's window comes up. The first thing I see is your picture, your name, your nickname, your permanent address, your list of hobbies, what languages you speak. That stuff's on the first page? Mm-hmm. What, how do you think everybody knows to ask you, oh, you like to make cookies, you know, whatever your yeah. people always bring. It's a common question. I didn't realize it right? was the first thing you well, see, it's one. Of, it's at the bottom of that first page, so... <laughs> And then the next slice is kind of is your ed, uh, like education as in where you went to school, where you did uh, medical school, any graduate degrees, your undergrad, and then some other kind of demographic info. So the first two whole kinds of things are really demographic. You know, it could, your, if you choose to add it on there, your race, ethnicity are on there, um, things like that. Um, so that's the first thing we see. So you could, you could. I don't know how many programs do this, but you could say, well, just based on that, a program could theoretically, you know, say, well, this geographically, I don't know that this is going to work. So if that's a challenge in your case, say you want to come to Mount Sinai, but you've done everything in Idaho, right? Well, then you know already that the first two slides of what I'm going to see or two windows are going to say Idaho. So then you're going to have to combat that somewhere in your application or through reaching out to us preemptively or rotating with us if you can. Otherwise, reaching out really works. Um, and it's not a time to be shy. So, so then the next thing that we see is your work experience and volunteer experience. So I'd say this includes whether you worked at McDonald's or in a lab how many hours you did and all that stuff. Will you volunteer at church or you volunteer um, at races, you know, whatever it is, it's all there, right? And so, and it's it's all one thing. So a lazy program director <laughs> is just gonna see a list of like 15 things. Mm-hmm. And they're not gonna sit, like really see that one is different than the other. Just see titles? Because it, it it's, it's just a scroll. So, you know, it'll say work experience, mm-hmm. and there'll be a list of things. And as you scroll down, it'll say research experience, and there'll be a list of things. But if you just scroll down quickly, you can say, like, this is pretty. And at the top, it'll say total items, like 15 or something. And then by each category, it'll say, you know, three or five. So it's rare for that page to be blank. Um, and for me, that's the thing I was alluding to before in terms of time management. When that page is blank, mm. then for me, that the next page we're going to talk about better be f- have things on it. So, but this is a page that I really look at it closely. I don't know about other program directors, but um, I find it has more real-world application in terms of your success as a resident and your happiness kind of outside of work. I found so, so that's so that's there. So you know, I cur- you don't. There's nothing too kind of small to put on there. Don't lie and say that you volunteer. 10 hours a week at whatever when you don't, but put something there. If it's an hour, you know, once a month, it still matters. Then the next thing we see, so, and, and the, the last thing I want to say about that is if you work in a lab, say you work in a lab all through medical school and you only publish one paper uh, or zero, that your work in that lab 
and the hours that you spent and whatever you worked on is going to show up on the tab with every other all your other work. So that doesn't show up separately. The next page or the next tab is your presentations. So it would be presentations slash publications. So peer-reviewed articles show up on the same page as posters, oral presentations, um, anything. The online publications, they all show up together. And they're sorted. Again, there's kind of like a... It'll say, you know, peer-reviewed publications, and then indented, it'll kind of list your publications. So uh, some programs really look at that, and they say, okay, well, there's nothing here that's a problem. Um, and for me, the big problem comes when both of those tabs that we've been talking about most recently are empty. Because then I say, what did you do with your time besides study? Uh, you know, if you have multiple publications, that kind of... Um, says to me, okay, well, they, may, they put a lot of work into research, so there wasn't as much time to volunteer, and vice versa. But usually you could put something in this tab, you know, like most people give some kind of oral presentation during medical school, and you can put that on, you know, you can actually put that stuff on there, you just are truthful about what it was. You say, oral presentation given to medical school as part of lecture series, and that will show up in this tab, and so then you don't have a zero there for when it's tabulated at the top. The next tab is your board scores, and so it'll say the USMLE or Comlex. So this is the fourth tab now? Fourth tab, I think. Okay. I can't count. We're pretty deep into this, yeah. and boards the, are only coming up now. Yeah, there's a lot. So, right. So the boards are there, and the Comlexes or scores are there as well, and there's a calculator. So you click on the calculator, and then you can convert the Comlex score based on the year it was taken into a percentage rank. So for program directors that aren't so familiar with the complex, they can still kind of say, okay, this was not a good score, this was a good score. So have no fear. The calculator's in there, so you don't have to feel like you need to take the steps if, if it's not in your world, but, but you can. Um, it certainly doesn't hurt, and it certainly is easier and less work on the program director. So again, depending on how much work the program director is really going to put into every application, which is usually somewhere between around the 400 mark, depending on where you go. The average applications per to each program is between four, around 400. I think we had like 470. Wow. Uh, and so you're really asking a lot of a program director or that committee to, to look through everything. So I'm not telling everyone to run out and take the step because I, I convert everything. But uh, you could see where that can become cumbersome. So uh, I don't think that's a big problem in rehab medicine because uh, prevalent to be osteopath in rehab medicine. It's, it's not unusual. That's true. Um, certainly, if, if you failed anything, it's going to show up on this tab as a big red X. It's actually a big red X? Well, it show, it show, there's a red X, yeah, that shows up on the top of the tab. Uh, and so you know. And so then you click, and it shows you the actual score report. And then it'll say, say failed and then passed. And so you can see there. And then a lot of times there's a place. I'm blanking on the tab now. It could be this tab. I think it might be this tab. Or it could be one of the others. And there's a place that says, like, was your training extended or anything you want to tell us, basically. So that's where you could say, anywhere where it says training, was your training extended, that's a good place to write also something about if something was an extenuating circumstance with your board scores. A lot of times life happens, somebody in your family has an illness or passes away, and for whatever reason you say, I'm just going to take the test, and you're just not in the right frame of mind. And then the next time you take it, you ace it. Right. So those are things you can put in there. And then the last tab is, have you ever committed like a felony or misdemeanor? Luckily, that's usually blank. <laughs> So those are the tabs, and then and then there's more. Then on the right <laughs> side of the screen, so these are all tabs, you know, like Windows on your Safari or Firefox or whatever. But then on the right hand side of the the upper right hand side of the screen, there's a little box, and it's a scroll box. You can scroll, and it has your transcript, your board scores, your letters of rec, um, the letter that your med school writes, you know, to say Barbara was our top one student or middle of the pack student or whatever. And all that stuff is there and your, and your personal statement. So I click through all that. And your letters of rec matter. You know, I, I don't think it matters who writes them. It's nice to have at least one rehab doctor, but you don't have to have them all. What matters is, are the letters good? I get a lot of, I don't get, I'm not, not a lot, but you see some applications that have like four chairs that wrote letters, but the letters are like a paragraph long. That's not necessarily as impressive to me as a pediatrician that wrote a three-page letter for you. So I think what matters is the, what we want from a letter of recommendation is to get a sense of if you'd be a good resident. 
It doesn't matter if my best friend wrote the letter or not. I guess, it, I mean, if it's going to be a good letter, then it matters. But if it's going to be just a regular letter, then I go for the good letter. Your personal statement is important. It's like anything that somebody reads. So the first paragraph is essential, the same as a first paragraph or page in a book. So if you could capture something that makes somebody want to keep reading, then that's important. Because when you're reading the 450th application, you might skim. But you won't skim if that first paragraph is really well written. And so think of it like story, telling a story or writing a book. Uh, I think that's important. If you really want somebody to really read your statement and get a sense of who you are. The other things, I look at the transcript. You know, I want to make sure you didn't fail like a ton of things. Because you can have good board scores and, and have failed classes or courses or whatever. And then I don't look so much. I, I look at it, but it's not quite as important to me, the letter your med school writes except that they'll put, uh, usually we'll put quotations of people you've rotated with that you had in medical school. You know, Barbara was a great medical student or Barbara showed up late all the time, so that's why we gave her like an average score. So those things go in there and there is, it's, it's regulated by the ACGME what's supposed to go in there. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they changed the format a couple years back to something that's supposed to be uniform. Not everybody does it yet, but they will. And so there's specific wording this word means this, that word means that, that the program directors kind of know. But again, that to me is a little less important than some of the other stuff, but, but we look at everything. And that's it. Luckily, there's not more than that. So that's kind of, that's how it looks to us. So if you could picture that and you could think, okay, well, there's a lot of places that are looked at. How do I emphasize one place over another? Or how do I make sure, you know, this landscape doesn't look too barren in certain places? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something to consider. Cert- the other thing that you should know as an applicant is I can sort by stuff. Really? So I could sort by your board scores. I could say sort by board scores 240 or higher. And if you're below really? that, then you, then you kind of get sorted out. And I can interview only people with those super high board scores. I can, I can sort by a lot of different things, things that are objective, board scores and, and like a few other things that you can sort by. But it's something to consider. I don't do that. I don't have a cutoff for who I interview. But certainly you could also, for example, sort for people that have failed the test or different things. So I, I, I could imagine that some residencies may do that. So if there's a place that you really want to go and you have a concern on your application, rotating there or reaching out would be appropriate. So the sooner the better. Wow, that is really great insight. <laughs> I'm sure everyone, including myself, have wondered all those things, just yeah. what it looks it's like. It's a little late now, right? One. Yeah, now it's totally but for, too late. But for next year. <laughs> yeah, rank lists are tomorrow, actually. They are it? tomorrow. You still have time to convince me, Barb. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, you mentioned emailing a couple times now, and that's mm-hmm. another point where students sometimes feel unsure about how to navigate that. When should we email? How... Do we write the email? What do we say? And I guess that kind of parses out into two parts, you know, before the interview, trying to get an interview, and then however the interview Mm -hmm. goes, you know, the thank you right after, and the communication, and the love letters, and we're all very confused. So any insight in that? So what's decorum? (laughs) Um, So I've used this, some of this may sound, I don't know if I've said this to you, so it may sound familiar, but in some ways this is a lot like The Bachelor. You did mention yeah, so, that. That's great. You know, if, if the program is The Bachelor, then they can't say certain things to you. They're not supposed to tell you they love you. Uh, it's against the rules, although we know some of The Bachelors break that rule. <laughs> right? So, but you as the contestant can say anything you want. Right. All right? Uh, so that's true. Now, I think, so from, a, from the applicant, the consideration really is, am I emailing so much that I'm becoming annoying? Okay. Right? So I think... To, to email before interview season has started is totally fine because we're not getting a lot of it, uh, emails then. Mm. So it's actually a fair time to email and just say, hey, just so you know, I'm from Idaho, but <laughs> you know my fiancé is living in New York and they have a job there or they just started med school there, so I know they're going to be there for four years and it's really important for me to go. And I don't want special consideration from you, but I just want you to really take my application seriously, blah, blah, blah however you want to word it, it's totally fine. I think, here's my general rule about emailing. Say I'm emailing someone and I want to be annoying and pesky because I need something from them. 
then I might email like once a week. If I'm trying to be nice, you know, then I might give it a few weeks, like say three weeks, four weeks. So this might be, let's say, if you're trying to get an interview and you haven't heard yet. And you could do that sneakily. You could say like, hey, you know, um, I had, you know, I, I was talking to another program and they had trouble like seeing my letter of recommendation. I just wanted to make sure that you could, you didn't have any trouble oh doing goodness. that. You know, whatever you want. Or like, listen, I just updated something. So you could, you could, you could say like, hold something back or upload a letter of rec. And then you're being totally honest and saying, hey, I just updated something. Right? Or you could just say, hey, I wanted to let you know that I'll be at AAPMR. It'd be great to see you there. Right. Right. So any, so any kind of excuse to send an email that's not saying, where's my interview? Just to say, hey, I'm, I'm here. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. That's pretty Would slick. be uh, <laughs> acceptable. I think it, it can get grading if somebody's emailing you every day. More so for the program coordinators because a lot of times it, the emails go to them and then are siphoned through you know, a variety of systems that we have to keep ourselves sane. Sure. Um, so, which brings me to another side point, which is be as nice as possible to the program coordinators. Because when we make our rank list, they have veto power, really? at least in my program. Yeah. So, be nice to everyone. Because when you get to residency, you have to work with everyone. And that's essential to our field. I don't want somebody that, when I turn my back, is going to be disrespectful to a, you know, like a nurse assistant or a therapist or whoever. So I take that very seriously. And you could be disrespect, disrespectful in subtle ways, you know, in the way that you email and how you word it. All that is important. All that is read into because everything that you, every time you communicate with us, it's a data point. And because everybody's application is so good, we use all those data points to the best of our ability. Of course. Yeah, I mean, there's no, it's hard because there's not a time to be shy. I'd say once a month is totally fine. If you're getting up to the once a week mark, then I'm going to find you annoying. But once a month is totally fine. And even once every three weeks, I think you could get away with. <laughs> Especially it early on in the season, because things are still fresh and new. And a lot of people have not sent out their interviews. So there's time. I think we're touching on a lot of things about how to get an interview, when to be worried about emailing. People send out interviews in different ways. So I don't think that there's a good forum for where med students can go and say these interviews were sent out. So like Mount Sinai has sent out all their interviews. I think there's like student doctor network or whatever, but I don't think it's updated very well. But there, you know, that could be something to consider because I send my interviews typically in like two waves. I always save some spots, but I've read everyone's application usually within two or two weeks of everything opening. So I send out a wave super early. And then I sent, that's like the first half. And then the second half is somewhere between one and two months later when I've let things kind of settle down, people that apply a little later, and I look at that. But I really reward people that have everything in early because that's something that I value and something that I think reflects on if you're going to turn in your duty hours on time and stuff. Right. So, you know, when you email, you have to consider those things. So if you're waiting till Thanksgiving to email, and your, the program you're emailing stops interviewing before Christmas, that's probably a problem. There's not much time for you there. Mm -hmm. So kind of understanding. So one thing that would be fair at some point to email and say, hey, Anna's our coordinator. You email Anna and say, hey, you know, I know it's early in the season still. How long do you interview? Like, when's your last interview? How many interviews do you have? Um, I'll ha I'm going to happen to be in New York like these days. So all those things are kind of helpful uh, for us, but also for you to kind of say, okay, well, I know Mount Sinai's last interview is January 13th or whatever day, so I really shouldn't email kind of past this point because then it would kind of be futile. Because I do get, I have gotten emails after we're done with interview season, and I kind of say, well, I'm sorry. Right. At this point, there's, there's literally nothing I can do because I'm not opening up another interview day. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Oh, is that, is that helpful? Absolutely, okay. all of it, very helpful. And for after the interviews, anything because oh, yeah. there's mixed emotions. But I want to hear these. what do you what do you hear? What what do you what are the rumors that you're hearing? Okay, so I've heard I've heard some places love it and that it can be a huge deal and that showing that interest can change your rank mm -hmm. and that it's a great idea, go for it type deal. I've heard, I haven't really heard straight out, don't do it, it's not going to be received well. Mm -hmm. 
And then I've also heard it can be very neutral and very likely you just won't hear back and it just gets into someone's trash bin and their email and that's kind of the end of that, but you didn't really hurt yourself. I don't think you'll ever hurt yourself unless you have a ton of grammatical errors in this email that you're sending. Um, I think it's a lot of people, I'm certainly not the first to compare the match process to speed dating. And I think you could think about this the same way. So if the program is feeling good about you and you're feeling good about the program and you let them know that sooner rather than later, those good feelings are going to stick, I think, stick better. So you know what? We really were, you know, we had a good feeling with Barbara today. I think she'll fit well. And guess what? She emailed and she said good things. Um, I think, so I think in that sense, it's going to be helpful if you guys are feeling each other, so to speak. It can't hurt in any other instance. I don't necessarily use it to rank, like I'm not going to say when I'm making my list, uh, you know, Joe sent me a letter and Bill didn't. I'm not going to take that into consideration at that point. But what you have to never forget about is the human element in what we're doing here. So you hear me talk about data points and like I'm trying to be as objective as possible, but we're all just people. Our feelings are going to get involved at some point. And whatever you could do to help that relationship grow will only be helpful to you in the end. Because even if you don't match there, people are going to feel that you're respectful, you're kind, you're considerate, and you don't know how much that letter is going to help you or email that you sent is going to help you for fellowship. Or later on when you're looking for a job, or at the AAP when you bump into that program director and they say, you know what, Joe sent me the nicest email and I'm going to introduce him to all these people because I think even though he didn't match with us, he's a great guy, uh, et cetera. So, you know, I don't, I think it's, in some ways, it's hard as an applicant, but keeping the big picture in mind is important. So I would say definitely send something. The timing of that, you know, I usually, when do I expect something? I would say I usually expect it within the first week, but I'm fine with it comes later. I would say if somebody emails you, say a program emails you, and they say, hey, what's up? How's it going? That's usually a good indication that they're interested. So certainly take that opportunity to respond if, if you want to reciprocate that interest. Again, because there's not so much we can say, but we can invite you on a one-on-one date, right? So that's kind of what that, if go, to go back to The Bachelor for anybody that doesn't know, that's kind <laughs> of the, the what you're implying there to say, right. you know, is there anything more I could do for you? Is there, are there any other questions you have? And you can do that as an applicant also. You can reach out and say, you know, I know I interviewed uh, before and I already sent you a thank you, but I'm done interviewing. I've made my rank list. Uh, this is how I'm feeling now. And I think that's totally fair because things change along the interview trail. And that's expected. So we don't take any of that personally. And we totally understand. We'd rather know about it than not. And we cert- the only time... A program will ever, ever, the only time you could ever hurt yourself is if you tell a program that you're ranking them first and they rank you to match and you don't match there. People never forget that. That's the only time you will ever hurt yourself. So you could say, I'm ranking you super high, the highest, you know, I would love to match at your program. It would be such an honor. You're in my top two or three. You could say all of those things. Right. But don't say you're going to rank someone first if it's not true. So basically, just don't, if you don't lie, then you're fine. So rank lists, for example, are due tomorrow. So now yes. it'd be probably a little late. Is there a timeline that you know? Probably everybody submits their rank lists at different times. Yeah, I mean, I think, too late. I think a lot of program directors are ready. This wasn't the case with, with me this year. But a lot of program directors that I've been talking to the, you know, the last day or two are ready. So the second that it opens up to start to make your rank list, they have it ready, they submit it, and they certify it. Really? So sending something early February doesn't... Sending something in February is not always helpful. Interesting. I would say January is probably when you want to send it. Certainly, things can change, and that's why... So right now, my list is in. I think I turned it in last week. So I did. I did last Wednesday. So, (laughs) But I could still, right now, you know... Let's say Barbara's handing me a $100 bill right now. You guys can't see, <laughs> so you don't know, you don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> so right now, live on the podcast, I could go into my list, edit it, and then recertify it. So it's still, it doesn't mean that 
it doesn't mean that it can't help, but it just means there's an extra step. Right. And because we're all people, anytime there's an extra step, then that just means there's a little bit more work you have to put in to make it happen. And so I just think something to keep in mind is that workflow is always important to keep in mind. Say you just finished going into the garage for something. You walk back into the house. Somebody says to you, oh, did you, can you go back into the garage and do this? Of course, they're going to roll their eyes and walk back in the garage and do it, or they're going to say no. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Okay. Wow. That's so helpful. So many things that I'd been wondering about <laughs> for months now. That's great. Is there anything else that we didn't get to cover? Anything else you think people would be dying to hear from you? Dying to hear from me. I don't know that I could say anything about that. One thing I just I would say, physical medicine and rehabilitation is a unique field, and I think we're positioned in an interesting way, and we could go one of many directions. And in fact, we could go in all directions. And I think for, for people listening, and for you, it's just important to really believe in what you're doing because that's what's going to drive change. So you might hear people talking about, oh, we're going to subacutes, or we're doing this, or we're doing that. What really matters is what's right for the patient and that we believe in their quality of life and their quality of care. And if you keep that in mind and you're focused and you do the right thing, and that doesn't just mean clinically, but that means in terms of advocating within your hospital system or your private practice or within local or state or national government, then there's really no limit to how far the field is going to go because the essence of what all the changes are happening with our medical system really revolve around the quality of care that we deliver. I mean, money drives it all, the lengths of stay and all these things, but how are we going to get there? Through quality of care and thinking about the person as a whole and the system as a continuum and all of these things, and who really knows that better than, than what we do. In the end, we learn about all of those things. We see the outpatients, the inpatients on consults in the ICU, all the way down to the general floors. They come to us in rehab. They go to the subacute. They come back to us. We see everything that they live, and we work as a team every day. Those are the two really building blocks in everything that's needed. So I think that the generation of people that are listening to this podcast are the ones that are going to decide where the specialty goes. So I think my plug would be, you know, come in ready and passionate, and you really are going to make a big difference. Those are some really inspiring words. That's perfect, especially as a bunch of us are going into the match right now. So that's great. (laughs) Good. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Escalon. If you want to hear more of his PM&R wisdom, check out his episode on the Undifferentiated Medical Student podcast, also known as Tums. Over there, he explains what physiatry is about, and it's an excellent listen, even if you know the field pretty well. We're not affiliated with the Tums podcast, but it's a seriously great resource to get to know all the different medical fields as a student choosing your specialty, or just learning about what other specialties actually do. If you find our podcast, The Pocket Mentor, helpful, you can help other students find us by subscribing to AAP Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to write us a review. You can also follow your medical student council and the AAP on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again.